0: Hello. Now then, I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. He was a complete creation of his own making. So I was the very, very first in the whole world. I've got plenty of other peoples. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers, they've all got plenty of kids, I've got plenty of kids on Jim Will It. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sort of kids, they all go home to their parents. He me to do things for him, he wants me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex gave him
1: every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn to prey on some extremely damaged individuals.
0: Sir James Savile, OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than 30 million pounds for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. But the truth is I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fellow, uh, and, which is why... When people say, "Those five places you've got to live in, aren't they expensive?" I said, "Not as expensive as a wife." Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile, as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, no, Desmond. No, he's not. Mm-hmm. No, he's not. Get not me! Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. No. Yeah. I won't. Not oh, until you <laughs> say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and send Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side and say, does that mean anything? And if he says that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex that he would arrange for me and my friends to go to television center and be on his television show. Hey, hey, hey. We've got it all happening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's around, we are going to start with our guests. hope it's been a very good week for you. And here's a very good set to fix it for you. Here we go now with a letter from Lee. Yeah, Lee. Lee. So, I promise. I promise. That you... Give us trouble. Are Are the only one. Are the only one. <laughs> In my life. Well, I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more attacks. I thought it was disgusting. But I did that. Okay. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling, and very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ, but there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Duncroft in Jimmy dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. (laughs) You used to be a wrestler, didn't you? I still am. I (laughs) am. I'm feared in every girl's school in this country. Hello and
1: welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our 12th look at the life and crimes of Jimmy Savile. Before we get into it, as always, we have our normal plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, that would be Facebook, Instagram, or MeWe and YouTube. Just search for Ian Totten, author or the Deathcast. If you'd like to find any of my books, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash books You can also go to the official website, corpsecreekpublishing.com. You can find links to all of my novels there. While there, you can also sign up for the show's mailing list, as well as make a donation. Buy me a cup of coffee if you'd like to help with the production of this show. If you'd like to become a patron of this show, just go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can help support the production of this show. And for those of you who have messaged me asking about Patreon-only content, it is coming. I have the first few cases lined up. I just have to have a moment to sit down and actually record the first episode. If you enjoy this show, please consider liking and subscribing on your favorite podcast app and leaving a five-star review. Also, don't forget to share the show on social media. Now that all the plugs are out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice chair, sit back, relax, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, Saville had raised around 5 to 7 million pounds to construct a new spinal injuries center at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. This had much further reach and consequences than just building this spinal injury center now at this point Jimmy is really entrenched with the royal family he has gone so far beyond what any other television presenter and DJ has ever done he's actually at this point becoming a confidant of both Prince Charles, as well as his wife, Lady Diana, and he's also in the ear of Margaret Thatcher, the current Prime Minister of Great Britain, so much so, in fact, that as he's giving her little hints and nudges that he would like a knighthood, Thatcher really begins to take this under consideration and actually begins to reach out to people in that particular area of the government. And she's going to do this over the course of the rest of the decade, every time the Queen's New Year's honors come up, trying to get Jimmy a knighthood. And every time that it comes up, she's going to be told the same thing, which is basically He's kind of unsavory. The things he's done in the past, the things that he's saying in the press, we really don't think it's a good idea. Some people have put forth the idea that those who were helping to make the decisions as to who gets a knighthood or not may have known that Seville had a predisposition for young girls it is known that throughout the preceding years there had been a number of complaints lodged against Saville from the various families of girls that he had taken advantage of although if you've been following this show at all you'll know that none of these ever came to anything. They never made it into the papers. There was never court cases associated with them. There is a good amount of evidence that suggests that Jimmy did in fact pay off the families of some of these young women. but there is no evidence to state that the government, specifically the royal family, had any inclination of what it was that he was doing away from the prying eyes of the public. And you have to imagine that someone who is as powerful and as well-known as Saville, security forces everyone in Great Britain who would have a reason to be checking into Saville would know if he was going out and was molesting girls, especially to the levels that has it has been claimed that Saville molested girls. If you look back around 2013-2014, the numbers that are thrown out there are absolutely astonishing. Three, four, up to a thousand Supposed victims of Jimmy Savile. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of concrete evidence to back up the majority of these claims. As I mentioned in other episodes, many of the young girls that Savile took advantage of were willing participants. That's not just me saying that, this is by their own admission. With decades of hindsight, to allow them to realize that, you know, the things that I did were wrong, and what he got me to do was even more wrong. But we're not going to be focusing solely on Saville's love life. As the 80s wore on, Saville really began to court controversy after controversy. First one of these that we're going to look at this week involves his Relationship with Broadmoor Mental Hospital, which I talked about a little bit last week and in previous episodes. Broadmoor was really a hospital for those who were deemed criminally insane. Seville had latched on to the hospital back in the late 60s, early 70s. When the 1980s rolled around, Seville latched onto a very specific patient at the hospital. That would be the Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe. I discussed it some last week. I also discussed the relationship the two of them had in the Yorkshire Ripper series I did. There are those who believe that Saville was actually a participant in the Ripper crimes it was recently brought to my attention from somebody who lives in that area that the main proponent for this was actually a detective who had worked on the Yorkshire River case, who after he had retired came out and revealed the information regarding Jimmy having his dental imprint done of his teeth to try and match it to the bite marks found on one of the victims, specifically because, much like the Ripper, Saville was known to frequent prostitutes in Leeds, and again, as I stated before, one of the victims was found within view of his apartment. From what I have been told, the majority of the police do not believe that, Saville was actually involved in the crimes beyond his association with Sutcliffe after the fact. Nevertheless, there is a small but very vocal community of conspiracy theorists who believe that not only was Jimmy involved in it, but that the police knew about it, but because of the power Saville wielded as well as his connections throughout the government, they were told to keep that particular aspect of the crimes quiet. Is that a possibility? It most certainly is. I can't say for certain. My own belief is that while it's a possibility, there's not enough concrete evidence out there to support the claim either one way or the other. What I do believe, however, is that Saville saw an opportunity to latch on to somebody whose name was still very fresh in the public consciousness. And by doing so, it was a way to get his name out there further, as well as have some darker stories about himself written in the newspapers. Because Saville was unable to move away from this dark and seedy tough guy image that he had been propagating since the 1950s, and it was something that he liked to remind people of whenever the image of him began to soften too much within the public eye. And you can see this again and again throughout the years, that when he's really being embraced by both the government and the British people, he will go out of his way to remind them of just how tough a man he was and the things that he had done to troublemakers back in his club days, while throwing in small hints that he might have had some... into the Underworld in Manchester. And I really think that this was Saville's attempt to keep himself within the public consciousness and build upon that mystique of himself. Because if you've ever read about or encountered full-blown mobsters, they go out of their way to you know, sway your fears that they're this violent criminal, Seville almost seems to be the opposite of that. He wanted to, you to know that there's this other side of him that you don't know about. Almost as though he's tr- saying this as a way to get you to stay at arm's length and not look too closely at him or dig too deeply into the things that he has done. This talk of his violent past life, in fact, is the main reason that the Queen's birthday honors repeatedly passed him over throughout the decade of the 1980s for a knighthood. Because Saville could not keep his mouth shut and was going and talking to the British papers when they were digging into him here and there and he was telling them these stories about how they would rough kids up and lock them down in the basement of the dance halls and chain them to the boiler, and after the fact, Saville and his hired men would teach them a lesson. This kind of thing, it almost seems as though he was his own worst enemy in regards to his public perception in the respect that the government saw this and did not want to give the highest honor that they possibly could to such a man. And I think that once Saville realized, hey, you know, I'm running my mouth about this stuff and it's not getting me what I want, I maybe need to Step back from saying these things, which he eventually did until he had his knighthood, while also keeping the people of Britain speaking about him. Seville actually went on to state that he thought Peter Sutcliffe was, quote unquote, a great bloke. Again, he's creating controversy by saying this, while at the same time, he's getting people talking about him, which if you know anything about Saville, that was the heart of the matter. He had to keep people talking about him because if they're talking about him, it means he's a somebody, and it also means that other people, not just the general populace, are going to be talking about him and are going to be attracted to him. It's a very odd manner of self-promotion that he mastered throughout his life. A good example of this further still would be Gary Glitter. I think I talked about this in another episode. If I haven't, Seville came out in support of Glitter once it became known that he was in fact a pedophile who had not only been convicted in Great Britain, but had also been convicted in other countries. And in fact, after finishing a prison sentence in, I believe it was Thailand. I might be mistaken on that because I don't have my glitter notes in front of me. Glitter was actually expelled from that country after his prison sentence was finished, and there was a large question as to where he was going to land. Seville actually came out and said something to the effect of who's to say whether he's a pedophile or not. Some people have looked at this as Saville trying to hint at what he was actually into. That's one of those many aspects of Saville that it's hard to tell whether he was doing that, you know, trying to let the public know without letting them know that he was into some pretty seedy stuff or if it was simply Saville's way of getting the public talking about him, because at the point that he made these comments, he was well into his 70s and had moved on for the most part from the roaring public life that he had enjoyed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Another controversy that Saville courted during the mid-1980s was Talk to the Sun, which, from what I gather, was a tabloid in Great Britain, where he went into good detail about the things that he had done to troublemakers during his dance hall days. It actually appeared in a series of articles under the headline of Jimmy the Godfather where it was claimed that it was going to blow the lid off the violent world of Jimmy Savile. We've already talked about that. The main takeaway from this, however, was the way Jimmy spoke about sex in this article, and it was a topic that he brought up invariably in every single interview he ever did. Savile stated, I like girls. Plenty of them. Before I go out, I write my telephone number half a dozen times on bits of paper and put them in my pocket. Further on, he said, I have a busy sex life. As long as the circumstances are right and it's not hurting anyone, it has got to be a natural progression. Not just an animal rushing about, a farmyard rutting. As long as the circumstances are right and it's not hurting anyone. Saville really went to great pains throughout the years to push the idea that not only was there possibly an animalistic mechanism to his sex life, but that he also made certain he was never hurting anybody whenever he had sexual relations with somebody. As we know now, since his passing that is not the case at all. Seville hurt a lot of people along the way, whether they were willing or unwilling participants in the things that he was getting into. There are women who were young girls back then who were left devastated and severely emotionally scarred by the things that Saville pressured them into doing in order to bask in the glow of his celebrity status. I would imagine that there are scores of women now who were involved in that scene or similar scenes when they were young girls who did things with other famous people, be they rock stars or movie stars, carry similar scars with them, because you have to remember, these people that they were taking advantage of were, for the most part, even if they were legally of age, still mentally and emotionally impressionable, and by being coerced into doing these things, or even if they weren't coerced, even if they was, you know, on their, their idea. The mind of someone who is that age is much different from the mind of someone who's in their 30s or 40s, and it leaves long-lasting scars upon their psyche, scars that they may not even be aware are there until they reach a point of what I'm going to term you know, full maturity when they look back and see... I made this choice, or I was convinced to do this at this period of time, and because of that, I made these choices throughout the course of my life leading up to now, and that's why things are the way they are within my world. And in an episode or two, when I actually read from some of the reports that were published as a result of the Saville revelations you're going to hear in the own words of these young girls and women who were victims of Saville just the what the things that he coerced them to do did to them on a personal level one last little takeaway from the articles that ran in the sun is that Saville went to great pains towards the end of the series to point out that he had never taken advantage of a fan, which we know in hindsight was the absolute opposite of reality. But Jimmy did this a lot, and I really think that he did it in an effort to not only throw people off of his trail, but to sway his own conscience because whether he was a good human being deep down or an awful human being deep down there is still at some level that little voice that whispers you shouldn't be doing these things and we will get back into Jimmy Savile in just a moment.
0: Best Selling Author, The House of Silver Doors, The Blood God Trilogy, Maggie, a book which New York Times Best Selling Author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burnt into Lieutenant Koro Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie. Who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie. Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path, and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured, Maggie. Hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11 30 2021 in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned.
1: We are back. One other little takeaway from the articles that ran in the sun. Is that Saville went out of his way at the end to state, parents can trust their 17-year-old daughters with me. They could come and spend the night at my flat if they were stuck for somewhere to stay and I'd never take advantage. I'm careful who I make love to. I'm very careful to stick to the rules with my girls. I do believe there is some small smidgen of truth in that last statement from much of what I have read concerning Jimmy, it doesn't seem as though he took advantage of many girls who were not a part of one of his teams. That's not to say that he didn't coerce girls to become members of his teams, but for the most part, he had his group of girls in a particular area, and those are the ones that he preyed upon. He might bring a girl that he took a particular fancy to into the fold, but he really didn't stray outside of abusing the members of his teams very often. At least not in any stories that are actually able to be verified as having happened. Again, as I've stated before, that's not to say that there weren't members of his teams who didn't end up having what I can only term as buyer's remorse, and I don't mean that to sound as cold as it comes across. There were members of Saville's teams who realized a bit too late that what they were doing was wrong. So they turned around and either cut themselves off from all contact with him and with the friends that they had made within his circle, or they turned around and went to a newspaper or a television show. Every time that this happened, because he was known to be so litigious, the individuals involved, whether it be the author of the story or the newscaster, invariably contacted Saville or were contacted by his lawyers, and let it was known pretty quickly, you can run this story, but you're not going to like the consequences of it, at which point the story would be dropped and the girls would be sent on their way. Some people are scratching their heads, wondering how is this possible. It's very simple. Saville had a lot of money, he had a lot of power, he was seen by the majority of Britonians as being one thing, if you're a newspaper or a television show and you come out running a story about Jimmy Saville having taken advantage of or abused a young girl, the public backlash that you are likely to get is going to be devastating, whether the story is true or not. But not only that, Seville is going to sue you into oblivion because of the libel laws in Great Britain. If there is no physical proof that a crime has taken place and you come out publicly and say it took place, you're in deep shit. The newspapers, the Television, news, broadcasts all knew this. So whenever these types of stories involving Saville came up, they were very quick to move away from them. It was Saville's way of doing damage control, much like he did damage control after there was a bit of a public backlash to the Sun articles under the headline, Jimmy the Godfather he went to another newspaper and clarified things a little better to kind of soften the public image again. And this is what I was talking about when I said that Saville really was his own worst enemy at times. There was backlash from the articles that ran in the Sun. These articles weren't something that the Sun just came forward with on their own. Saville actually gave them these interviews but when the public backlash turned out to be more negative than positive, Jimmy went into damage control mode and immediately turned around and started giving interviews to other media outlets in an effort to soften what had been done from the Sun articles, and he did this a lot Anytime he misstepped and said something that he shouldn't have publicly said and there was backlash that would look like it was going to get on him and cause him problems, he immediately took another tact and manipulated the public consensus of him by giving a softer, kinder, gentler version of himself to this group over here to kind of get rid of the blowback that he came from what he had told the group on the other side. In this particular instance, Saville went out of his way to point out that the real girls in his life were the patients at Stoke, Mandeville, and other hospitals throughout Great Britain. And he cited specific cases of young girls who were in a really bad way that He really went out of his way to help and bolster the spirits of this was how Jimmy did his damage control. And as the 80s roll on, he continues to do this kind of damage control after giving less than positive interviews concerning himself. In 1987, Seville was done as far as being a DJ on BBC Radio 1. Some sources state that he was actually fired from the station while Saville went out of his way to try and spin it as it was more of his decision than it was the radio station's. News leaked that Saville had been let go from BBC 1 before Jimmy was ready for it to come out, and the radio station scrambled, putting out press releases and interviews where they basically stated that they had begged and pleaded with Jimmy to stay, but through the magnanimous nature of Saville, he had decided to move along so that somebody younger could have his position, spinning it that with Youth unemployment being what it was in Great Britain at the time. It was only right that he, who had been there for so long, allow someone who was in need of and worthy of having a job taken. The following year, in 1988,
0: there was a lot of
1: shake-up within the British press because there had been a lot of mismanagement throughout the... Health services in Great Britain. And one of the areas of contention was the administration of Broadmoor Hospital. There's been a lot of talk since his death, and there was a lot of talk at the time about Saville's role in Broadmoor Hospital. Basically, what happened was the Department of Health decided in 1988 that Broadmoor had been woefully mismanaged by those who had been running it and that it could no longer operate under the watchful eye of a single director. So instead, a task force was assembled. One of the members of this task force was a man by the name of Alan Franey who had met with Saville and a number of other highly influential people at the Anthenum Club. Franey was persuaded that he should put in for one of the positions at Broadmoor. And according to Franey himself, he got the position as general manager and chief executive on his own abilities but he never would have been considered had it not been for the intervention of Jimmy Saville. Interesting to note, Franny also stated that while he was at Broadmoor, he never heard any allegations concerning Jimmy Saville, despite what has been said in the last decade. The really important thing here, however, is that Jimmy Saville, who was nothing more than an entertainer and a philanthropist, was placed onto this task force to help with the running of Broadmoor Hospital. This has caused a lot of controversy, both when it happened as well as in the years since Jimmy's death, because... Rightfully so, many people looked at it and said to themselves, Why in the hell is an entertainer involved in the running of this major hospital for the criminally insane? Naturally, Saville spun it as he always did of who could be better for the job. These are my people. I care about every single one of them. And the government came and pleaded with me to head this task force. There's been some arguments back and forth as to whether or not Saville was actually running Broadmoor or whether Franey was. With each man giving different points of view, Saville eventually did concede that while Franey was the general manager, the day-to-day running of the institution had really been left to him. When pressed about the task force, Saville stated that many other people are good at talking or listening. He, however, was able to get things done, and reality is that is one thing that Saville was truthful on. If he wanted something done, or if the government tasked him with something, by and large, it was able to be accomplished because... He was so good at talking to people and bullshitting them and getting his own way, whether that was through buttering them up or, you know, conning them into doing what it was he wanted. He did have a track record, as shown by the Stoke Mandeville Initiative, of getting things he wanted to happen. More importantly, however... Saville, who had been dubbed Broadmoor's unofficial entertainment officer for roughly 20 years by this point, was a press magnet. Those in charge knew that he, if he was involved at a higher level with the hospital, it would bring more attention to the hospital. More attention meant more donations as well as an avenue to discuss any deficiencies or grievances within the hospital itself, and hopefully get the those grievances and deficiencies taken care of. They had seen what Seville was capable of doing with the Stoke Mandeville initiative, and knew that he, more than anyone else within Great Britain at this period of time, was able to rally the troops, as it were, to raise the money that the government needed or wanted for a particular project. So that is one of the many reasons that Saville was put onto this task force. But there was more to it than that. Saville was still pushing very heavily for a knighthood and it wasn't just he who was pushing for it at this point. Margaret Thatcher had put Saville's name in pretty much every year since around 82 or 83 for the Queen's honors list, and every year she had been denied, with the same line being thrown out, as I discussed earlier in the episode, that he was basically an unsavory character, and we cannot recommend an individual such as this be given the highest honor in the country. This was another way to kind of assuage their fears. Look, he's he may have been that person at one point, but he's no longer that person. He, he's on a task force for the nation's mo- largest and most well-known prison hospital. We have to give him this honor. And I really think that that was first and foremost in both Saville's mind as well as Thatcher's when he was appointed to the task force. Saville had an almost immediate effect on Broadmoor. He really shook the institution up, pushing to get rid of what he saw as individuals who were basically useless in their work there as well as trying to get some much-needed work done at the hospital through donations and removing 60 patients from the hospital who, in his view, as well as the view of others who were working there, should not have been at the hospital. Seville was able to get much of this work accomplished just based on who he was the 60 patients did end up getting transferred. New work was done at Broadmoor Hospital. Seville actually posed for pictures during this period of time. One set of pictures was taken with the Prime Minister around Christmas of 1988, Well, when the new wing was set to be opened at Broadmoor, he was photographed holding his keys to the hospital. And Again, this is something that has Become come a very hot button of contention among the British people and the British press with people wondering how a DJ could be placed in such a high position of trust given what we know about him. As I've stated repeatedly, they knew everything about Jimmy Savile. They knew that he was taking advantage of some very young girls, but they did not see him as a pedophile because he wasn't. He was a sexual predator, big difference there, who preyed on those who came within the circle of his influence and were open to such things. Now, there are those who will state that the government had to have known he was a pedophile just as they knew that the former MP from Rochdale, Sir Cyril Smith, was a pedophile. There's a big difference, however, between Jimmy Savile and Cyril Smith. Savile preyed on young girls, and he was an entertainer. Cyril Smith, however, was an MP It just means he was a member of parliament. There were, I don't know how many, accusations during Smith's lifetime that he had abused young boys at what accounts to orphanages throughout Rochdale and other areas of Great Britain. There's also quite a bit of evidence that he was in fact involved in pedophile rings something that there is no evidence that is believable concerning Jimmy Savile. Cyril Smith was basically beaten into line by the security forces in some regard because there were so many accusations during his lifetime. I'm not talking about how a girl's father would come forward and accuse Jimmy Savile of taking advantage of his daughter. I'm here and there throughout history, these were numerous, constantly plaguing Cyril Smith. Throughout the years of the police forces talking to him under caution, in a number of instances, he was actually arrested, and someone from the security forces had to go down to the police station to get him released or call the police station and talk to them and let them know that this is a matter of national security you need to forget you heard about this and let it go there was actually a dossier of cyril smith's offenses at a police station that was confiscated by security forces in great britain to keep charges from being pressed against him as well as To keep it from the public eye. The government knew about this. Smith was given his knighthood, I believe, in 1988. But by this point, he was really a powerless entity within Great Britain. This further came out when it was found that he was making money off of asbestos, which he had gone before Parliament and claimed was a non-lethal, non-dangerous substance. Smith gets his knighthood in 1988. By 1994, he's out of Parliament. He's back in Rochdale working for private corporations. Even with his knighthood, he is without power for the most part. Saville was always in power. And... I honestly believe, just on researching him, that had the government decided that he was a pedophile, they would not have allowed him to reach the heights that he reached. Jimmy reached heights that Smith could never even hope to have reached, and unlike Smith, he was open in his way about the things that he had gotten into and the things that he continued to get into. Based on that and the fact that he was simply an entertainer, I find it highly unlikely that the government would have approved his appointment to Broadmoor or allowed him to get as close as he did to the royal family and Margaret Thatcher, and given him a knighthood eventually, had he been what he has been claimed to be since his death. Saville had everyone on his side, whether it was the British government, the British people. He was really breathing rarefied air as we end 1988 and move into 1989, whereas Smith was really at the end of his run. Again, he leaves Parliament in 1994. His reputation is basically destroyed by the revelations concerning his making a Money off of asbestos, he disappears outside of Rochdale. He's not heard of much after that. Jimmy Savile ends up staying in the public eye as the next two decades move on, as you're going to see, albeit in a much scaled back capacity. He's still there. That is one of the many reasons why I don't believe the accusations as they stand now concerning him, because I cannot believe that the government would not be aware of this and would give so much power to someone were it true that he was doing the things that it was said he was doing. It's just unfathomable. People like to throw out the Governments are filled with pedophiles, things of that nature. To me, that's just a conspiracy theory, because any time an individual in one of those positions is found to be one, they're gone real quick. Jimmy didn't have that type of thing. Cyril Smith, once there were so many accusations against him in the 1980s, Really saw his power cut in half. If you look into him, he was very popular and powerful throughout the sixties into the seventies. The early nineteen eighties, he starts losing quite a bit of power. By the end of the eighties, he has nowhere near the power that he had once commanded. Jimmy never had that, even though he was out of the public eye for much of the. Time in his final years he still wielded great power that is it for this week I hope you enjoyed part 12 of the life and crimes of Jimmy Saville again if you like the show please leave a 5 star review on your favorite podcast app if you didn't like the show just move along uh, until next week I am your host Ian Totten the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.